who have already done most of your schooling, I, over the time of my education, ran into a few, let's say them, difficult teachers. And what I mean by that is I don't mean that they were uh, hard grade-wise. They were just difficult to have as a teacher. Uh, most of you know that for a little while I went to Catholic schools. One year uh, we had Sister Mary Kathleen, and I think I shared with you how she would throw chalk and would throw uh, mark, uh, uh, erasers at you. I had another teacher who told me once uh, that I was such a troublemaker, she didn't understand why I was there and not in the public school system. Later on in high school, I made a mistake and continued to make a mistake, and I was reading in front of the class, and when I sat down, the teacher literally said to me, I'm not sure you're going to make it in this life. I've had other harsh and difficult things said to me, And of course, if that's said to a young, impressionable mind, it can really shape the way they think, perhaps about their education, uh, perhaps about their life, perhaps about themselves. Perspective is everything. What I'm thankful for is that before I ran into some of those difficult teachers, I had a teacher by the name of Mrs. Lewis. Now, as I've told you before, I was a bit of a troublemaker in school, the kind of kid who would put tacks on people's seats just to see how they would react. Now, I got myself in a good bit of trouble with her, but I remember her sitting me down and saying, Tim, I don't think this is you. I think you're a fine young man. And I think that you simply need to understand how this is supposed to work. And she was very kind. She didn't get me in trouble. I had done something pretty uh, significant uh, to the tune of, of uh, getting physically violent with one of my student, uh, my classmates. She was very kind, never told the principal, never told my mother. And I remember her just being very clear about the fact that she thought that I was going to do something. She thought there was something more to me than the amount of trouble I got into. Perspective can change a lot. I remember later as I worked in management for a company, I was sent to a store it was the oldest store in the chain, and, and it was quite dysfunctional. wasn't much I could do. I was at the very bottom of the management chain. But about a year after I got there, the, this, the, the company decided they were going to replace all the management above me. Keep me there, but replace everybody else. And at the top of that management food chain was a woman who had a reputation. A reputation that you did not want to work for her. She was hard, difficult, mean. And so when she showed up, of course, everybody was already hostile towards her. I remember the first time she tried to supervise one of my shifts, and boy, howdy, did we not get along. But then I began to realize something. I was showing up for my shift, and, and uh, things were getting done. I had less to do when I got there. The, the staff I would have for my shift were showing up on time. Things were being put away. My job was getting easier as a direct result of having her at the top of that chain. It dawned on me. See, she rubbed people the wrong way because we had forgotten what a functioning store looked like. The things she was asking us to do should have been normal. Things that should have already been happening. But we had lost touch. 
She had come with this sincere desire to make everything better for everybody, but she was only met with hostility. You see, perspective can be everything. Those are the things that came to my mind as I began to read through Matthew chapter 12. In chapter 11, as we spent several weeks talking about, God's gracious King Jesus invites us to come and find rest in Him. And this invitation could not have been clearer. But here in chapter 12, we begin to see a contrast. On one hand, Matthew is going to show us the sincerity of Jesus' offer of rest. But on the other hand, we're going to watch as the hostility towards Jesus begins to grow. And it becomes a wonderful illustration of the battle we wake up to every single day. Will we move towards Jesus and believe That he gave himself for us out of the overflow of his gracious heart? Or will we get up every morning thinking we are going to have to work hard to warm his heart towards us? Perspective is everything. This morning the Bible is not going to give us five easy steps to a better marriage or three keys to good parenting. It's going to come right down to the heart and take us to the most important question we have to answer every single morning. Will I wake up and today believe what Jesus has said? Will I believe that he gave himself graciously for me and move towards him? Will I wake up today believing myself, thinking I have to work to make him happy and move away from him? Now Matthew here, he wants to convince us to move towards Jesus. And he's going to do that by continuing to focus on the subject of rest. Now, I have three points for you this morning. So, Mrs. Matthew convincing us to move towards Jesus every day. Number one, number one, God's commands are designed to lead to rest. God's commands are designed to lead to rest. Now, the Sabbath is the focus of the first 14 verses. The Sabbath was a literal rest built into God's design and becomes the illustration Matthew wants to use to show us what Jesus has just told us. Now back in Exodus 20, God's people, God tells his people, one day a week, I want you to cease from your normal workings. What he means is that the, the things that you would do primarily to prosper your family. That's what you were supposed to stop. So basically your day job. Now this command was part of a pattern. There were Sabbath months and eventually there was even a Sabbath year. And all of it was really intended to teach us that we could trust God to take care of us. Now believe it or not, over the first five books of your Bible, there's one command concerning the Sabbath. One. And it has to do with gathering sticks for a fire. That's it. Now later on, after those first five books, we get into the the, the, the histories and the prophets. And all that we get there is clarification of what work is and is not. So we're told, you know what? That means to not buy and sell. It means that you don't open your shop. It, doesn't, it means you don't transport uh, your goods. That's the obvious idea of work. And so the Sabbath was always meant to be one of those commands, one of those burdens, as we talked about, that's really not a burden. God commanding you to take a day off. And after that, he doesn't say anything. Just take the day off. But over time, 
thousands of rules and regulations developed. Many of them brought forth by a number of different religious teachers, and those teachers began to place burden upon burden upon the people. And that's the problem here in the text. Walking through this field, Jesus' disciples are hungry, and so they begin to pick and eat, as the King James puts it, corn. The Pharisees see this, they find it, uh, and they're outraged. The idea they were harvesting on the Sabbath. Now, I find that interesting seeing these were mostly fishermen. But to them, this was work and it was sin. You should not do this on the Sabbath. Now, to give you context, these men thought that sewing more than one stitch on a piece of clothing was a sin to do on the Sabbath. They believed that if you wrote down more than one letter of the alphabet on the Sabbath, it was a sin. If a building fell down and people died, you were not allowed to move the bodies until after the Sabbath. You could not tie a tie, you could not loosen a knot, you could not do those things on the Sabbath without sinning. Burden upon burden, yoke upon yoke. And if you broke any of these rules, now their desire would be to to, uh, convict you of first degree murder. But if they couldn't do that, you were turned out of the synagogue and you were shunned in society. And so this command that was intended for rest actually became the hardest command for the people of God to keep. And this is what Jesus means when he says the Pharisees replaced God's commands with their own. Not only the disciples not broken the commandment, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, it explained that what they did was perfectly legal and okay, even if they didn't even own the field. Now, as I mentioned several weeks ago, it's clear that this kind of legalism is alive and well in our society, that it is not simply a religious issue. Our culture today has a long list, not only of what you should and should not believe, but of words you should and should not use, places you should and should not shop, parties you should and should not vote for, costumes you should and should not wear, books you should and should not read, people you should and should not love. We live in a society that cares far more about whether or not your coffee is fair trade than whether or not you're buying it for a cold, homeless man. Burden upon burden, yoke upon yoke. But it is a religious issue, too. As a Christian, we're called to live in the warmth of God's grace. Yet we we try again and again to kindle our own fires. Galatians tells us the moment we try and help the gospel is the moment we lose the gospel and begin to live under a curse. And we fill up our lives with worry and dysfunction and resentment, burden upon burden, yoke upon yoke. And for every sin you commit, you've got to find a reason why you're still a good person. Every time you, somebody commits a sin against you, they've got to work really hard to prove that they're a good person. I've told you this before. Many times people come to church on Sunday morning simply because they think it's the thing to do to earn what they want from God. And I can tell you there are many people who don't show up for church on Sunday morning believing they've done everything they need to earn what they want from God. But that's never been the Christian faith. And if you live that way, you've lost sight of the gospel, or you never had it to begin with. Because religious practices don't atone for sin. Religious practices do not pay for our sins, pay restitution for our sins. Atonement and restitution were made at the cross of Christ. So we we are called, because of this perspective, we are called to, to, to stop making the effort. Instead, Obey the command 
the command to believe, particularly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we enter our rest. Number two this morning, as Matthew tries to convince us to move towards Jesus, number two, Jesus is the merciful Lord of rest. In response to their accusation, Jesus gives this threefold answer. He first takes them to, to the story of David in 1 Samuel 21. Now, if you don't know who David is, David was considered the greatest, most, uh, the, the, the best, most moral king they ever had. But Jesus tells the story of a moment when David and his men were running for their lives, and they show up at the tabernacle, and they're hungry. They're, at the, they're, they're on their, their last bit. And they go into the tabernacle on the Sabbath, and they eat all 12 loaves of the bread offerings. Now, if they had not done so, likely several of uh, of David's men would have died of hunger. Now, Jesus' point here to them is that if there was ever a moment in the Scriptures where the Bible could have condemned the actions of somebody for violating the Sabbath, it was there. David and his men violated a number of commands that day about bringing weapons into the tabernacle and, of course, eating the bread offering and more. The implication is that God approved what David did to save the life of his men. And the point is that Jesus is approving what his disciples were doing. And what he's doing is he's making himself at least equal, if not greater, than David. In his second response, he points to Sabbath worship. God commands, as we said, on that day, they're supposed to all stop work and rest. Except on that day is when God's ministers work harder. That's what Jesus means by profaning the Sabbath on the day when everybody's supposed to stop working. God's ministers work even more. The point being is that it's not wrong to do work for the purpose of worship. And so Jesus is saying these disciples and us, we're on our way to worship. And to eat means to make them better worshipers. So just for a little bit of a side note, it's good to remember to prepare for worship. Eat your Cheerios before you come on Sunday morning. The second point that Jesus is making is that, as he says, he is greater than the temple itself. Thus, any work done by him is greater than any work being done in the temple. Now, lastly, Jesus takes him to Hosea 6, where God says, I desire more mercy more than sacrifice. And he's saying, look, faith doesn't just exist in the outward practice. You, in fact, doing the, the rituals is the easy part. The hard part is when you show mercy, when every inch of you is offended, and that's that's the place where real faith exists. And so Jesus is saying, look, the disciples, even if they were violating the Sabbath, it would have been far far better for the Pharisees to have shown mercy than to complain. It would have been better than 10,000 sacrifices. But his second point is to say that I'm the judge in these matters. And I choose mercy. And so we hear we have the one greater than David, the one greater than the priesthood, greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath. And what do we find in his heart, as we talked about for so many weeks? Mercy. Clearly, the intention of Matthew is to show us Jesus didn't just talk about the lack of harshness in his heart. We see it here. We've talked about in this series about how all these religious leaders were corrupted by a number of wrong motivations. A big part of their hatred for Jesus was because of the fear that people would start following him instead of them and they were going to lose all their power and influence. 
These holy and pious men were so very easily corrupted. But this isn't new. One of the things our time is wrestling with is the reality that men and women who often do great things, things that are unequaled in their achievements, many of those men and women are also not good people. Martin Luther King Jr. got a lot right about the civil rights movement. But it's known that he abused women. Christopher Columbus's willingness to sail into the unknown literally changed the world. Yet he treated Native people with shocking cruelty. Thomas Jefferson's probably the greatest political mind of the last 500 years and had multiple children by a slave woman who was likely not doing so willingly. A number of first ladies in history did wonderful work for the poor and are well known for being terrible to work with. But what do we have here? Matthew's made it clear that Jesus is the absolute king of mankind. He's absolutely deserving of the wise men to bring him gifts. He has the right to speak about God with unquestioned authority. He is the one who judges whether you're fit to stand before God. He is greater than David, greater than priesthood, greater than temple, greater than the Sabbath. The point here is not what is and is not acceptable on the day set aside for worship. The point here is to ask the question, what authority does Jesus have? And the answer that Matthew is giving is all of it. And the point of that is to say, who is this Jesus with all of this authority? And the answer Matthew is giving is that he is the merciful Lord of rest. And the application for us as sinners is simple. Why would we resist this? Why would we be an enemy to our own peace? Then number three. Our rest is for God's glory. Our rest is for God's glory. After the conversation on the road, we, we arrive at the synagogue. There we learn about a man who has a withered hand. Now knowing Jesus does heal people, they begin to question him. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Matthew tells us this is a trap. They want to be able to accuse him. So Jesus replies by finding a hole in their argument. Now, being this is a culture, a society that survives on agriculture, a number of special exemptions had been given for the Sabbath. There were all those rules we talked about earlier, but when it came to the care of an injured animal or a lost animal on the Sabbath, that was acceptable. This was their livelihood. Now, Jesus doesn't object to this. He simply asks the question, if your sheep fell into a pit, wouldn't you go work to get it out? Isn't a man more valuable than a sheep? So if a man is suffering, isn't it right to do good on the Sabbath? And then Jesus proceeds to heal the man. But the whole account is actually leading up to verse 14. The Pharisees go out and conspire on how they can destroy him. He has now corrected them in word. He has now corrected them in deed. Matthew has already made it clear that Jesus did these kind of miracles for a simple purpose of showing he had authority, particularly the authority to forgive sins. And so here we have a king full of mercy who does this great thing for this sick man, invites these people to come and receive the forgiveness of sins. 
mercy, goodness, forgiveness, all of these things that establish our ability to rest, that change our perspective of the world. And it was robbing the Pharisees of their glory. Because that goodness, that mercy, that truth, that rest didn't glorify them. It glorified God. And they were not ready to share their glory with God. The whole point of this is about really about submission. On one side, you have the Lord Jesus, who's full of mercy and kindness and forgiveness. When we submit to him, we find rest, actual, real life rest. And we live in the perspective, in response to this mercy, to this kindness and this forgiveness. And and the end result is the glory of God. On the other side, we have our law-filled hearts trying to keep up the work. And it brings joylessness and grumbling. Our perspective is we have to earn the mercy, earn the kindness, earn the forgiveness. It really becomes an effort of glorifying ourselves. Now, if you're going to submit to Jesus, the the thing that you're asked to sacrifice is that you don't get to be God. You don't get to take his glory. There's no Frank is loved by God because he always shops local. There is going to be no Ethel isn't a good Christian because she wears jeans to church. In other words, submission to Christ means there's no more scorekeeping, no more trying to get leverage, no more neurotic controlling, no more fear stoking. And the question is, can you give that up? Or do you hate such preaching? Because what it means, as was famously said many years ago, all because that means all you bring to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And which one you submit to makes all the difference. Because underneath all of your struggles with sin, underneath your vaping, your immorality, your cheating, your temperament, underneath the trauma you experienced as a child that shaped you one way or another, underneath the difficulties you're facing today, underneath all your natural talents and all your shortcomings, underneath all that personality or lack of personality, is this choice. Christ, and you will find rest, and God will get glory. Don't choose Christ. There'll be no rest, but God will still get glory. For the Christian, this should shape how we think about everything we do. To baptize our mind in the grace of God every day before we baptize it in the ideas of what we have to get done that day. Being good to your neighbor, for example, is not, a, not in competition with your devotion to God. In fact, this gospel devotion liberates you to act in faith in a whole host of ways because you don't have to earn anything. And when you do good to others, out of the reality of rest, God gets the glory. So every morning you have to choose. Today, will I move towards Jesus and his grace? Or will I move away towards law and work to my own glory? Will I be defined by the reality that Jesus loves me and gave himself for me? Or will I be defined by my failures, my sin, my shortcomings? Will I be like the Pharisees and perversely resist Jesus' mercy, kindness, and forgiveness? 
Matthew here is encouraging us to move towards Jesus. Following God's commands have always been the fastest way to find rest. And that's all Jesus is calling us to do. And trying to find it by our own religious rule-keeping will never get us there. Submitting to Jesus doesn't need to be second-guessed. He is not the corrupted Richard Nixon. He is not like the other religious leaders or politicians who lay burden upon burden. Jesus is the merciful king of rest. And lastly, every day, you need to choose to move towards Jesus because of his mercy, his kindness, and forgiveness leads to rest. And it leads to the glory of God. He gets the glory because he solved our sin problem, not us. And then having set us free towards good works, is glorified again and again. Let's pray. Father, may we baptize our minds every morning. Every day choose to live under perspective of grace. Lord, let us be resistant to our law-ish ways, the desire to earn our own glory, and go to where there is true and absolute rest. Lord, again, help us not to be enemies to our own peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.